that is what this profession, what this all this body of knowledge continue to fascinate me, because it almost feels like it's still waiting for us to explore what more can we do for our patients and even for our intellectual pursuit. What more is out there? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I heard a word the other day that I hadn't heard in years: grok. Grok came from a popular sci-fi book of my youth, Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, which is a great title because what teenager doesn't feel like a stranger in a strange land? And who doesn't ponder the curious way the world unfolds or the disruptive and alluring influence of love? In the story, there's a mission to Mars. As I recall, it was not a government that sent people. There was a private company, which in the late 60s and early 70s of the last century, that seemed completely unimaginable. But today, perhaps the only way space exploration actually continues, but I digress. So there was this mission to Mars, and everyone dies, except for a child who was born on the journey. And he ended up being raised by Martians. And eventually, after he was, air quotes here, rescued and brought back to Earth, we find out that he thinks differently because, well, after all, he was raised by Martians, and Martians don't think like we do. They take time to grok a situation. Grokking doesn't come quickly. It's the opposite of a flash of insight. And until the fullness of time has arisen and passed, Martians don't take action. They grok the fullness of the situation first. Grokking means being able to consider all sides and aspects of a situation. It's the capacity not only to perceive multiple perspectives, but also grasp the relationships between them. It's akin to what my Buddhist friends might call bearing witness, that there is a cultivated, spacious presence that allows you to see with discernment and without judgment the various facets of a conflict. Grokking is the opposite of straw man arguments. It's an invitation into presence and patience. It means you're liberated from your opinions and emotional reactivity without having to deny them. Nakedly open to the present moment, your own storyline, just one part of the dynamic interplay of life unfolding. Grokking had nothing to do with procrastination, and I suspect that there was enough of a sense of self that you could forget the sense of self. It's not that you could see the future, but more the ability to clearly see the present. It's a good skill for an acupuncturist to be capable of enough stillness to melt away our reactivity and enough courage to follow through with precise action when the time is right for intervention. Because in our work, we are called to action. But how to know what action to take? Mm, grokking helps. It is easy to think that because we use the principles of Chinese medicine that are thousands of years old, or that because we read the translation of a book from centuries ago, that we are directly connected to the medicine of those times. We're not. The challenges and the influence of those times is mostly lost on us unless we have a background in history or facile enough with Chinese that we can understand not just the diagnoses and the treatments, but the tenor of the times in which those books were written. 
In this conversation with Alan Saar, we get a glimpse into some of the nuance of the worldview and the medicine of previous dynasties, along with some thoughts and practices for engaging the medicine here in our modern day. As ever, I'm delighted to bring you a conversation with a practitioner who will challenge your thinking and invite you in to a broader perspective. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. 
Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash to learn how. I've got a quick note about the sound quality of today's podcast. I apologize. We like to bring you the highest quality sound possible. And due to some problems with the internet and our recording system, the sound that we got isn't quite up to the usual geological standards. I apologize for that. We do our utmost to bring you great conversations that are easy to listen to because the sound quality is good. We did our utmost to correct the problems with the sound, but there's only so much that you can do in post-processing. And you know, conversations have their own kind of special magic, and so you can't really go back and redo it again. We've done our very best to make this one sound good for you. Let's get into this conversation now with Alan. Alan Sauer, welcome to Geological. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Well, actually, the honor and the pleasure is all of mine. I have read some of the translations that you've done. I've read some of the uh, provocative thoughts that you've had about Chinese medicine over on your website. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, yes. That's right. And here we are in public, and we're going to talk about some of this stuff. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. It should be a lot of fun. So we had a little conversation before rolling some tape here today. I had mentioned that I noticed that cool model of the uh, Saturn V rocket that's on your bookshelf with your Chinese medicine books. And I thought, this guy must be some kind of geeky, like, tech dude, in addition to being a Chinese medicine practitioner. What originally did you study in school, and how did you find your way into Chinese medicine? Well, it's a long story. So I originally attended Northwestern University, and I was majoring in material science engineering. Uh, and also, I did a lot of research in nanomaterials. So research and lab work engineering, that was my stuff. And after I graduated from college, I went to work as a consultant in China. So when I was in China, I was based in Shanghai for almost two years. and during the weekends, someone took me to an acupuncturist near Qibao of Shanghai. So I think it's about 20 minutes or 30 minutes away from the Shanghai city center to the west side. And then that was my first experience of getting acupuncture. I remember I, I feel the first needle going was like, oh my God, Alan, you, you are such a brave man to take in the needles. Do I know that would be doing that to the people right now? But that was my first exposure to that. And it didn't really create a drastic change in my life, but I remember I was just getting curious. I was like, what is this? And why does it work? Because I have seen, for me, because I'm relatively healthy, but for other people, like I would see people with like some very excruciating pain going into a clinic and they would, they would just walk out. And I was just like, how does that work? So that curiosity got to me. 
So I just started to read a little bit about Chinese medicine. And then I started reading a few blog posts by this Taiwanese American doctor. His name is Ni Hai Sha. He passed away in 2013. He probably pushed out some of the most pro- aggressive <laughs> posts out there, and in which he kind of points out the flaws of the mainstream medicine and what Chinese medicine could accomplish. And so that was what really piqued my interest. And then I just remember I just started to buying books and started read one book and another. Then I got the books, but I didn't understand anything about it. And at first I, I thought I could just do it as a hobby. Maybe like I'll be working at the same time and then do, do some of that stuff. Maybe like shooting Thai did back in 400, 300 years ago. But shooting Thai. You picked yeah. up shooting Thai. Yeah. Yeah. He was a canal engineer and he was a, some guy who practiced medicine as a hobby and he did it much better than everyone else. And he wrote a lot of, can almost classify as troll post today. And, but then I just kind of feel like if I only do this as a hobby and then I, I'm working at the same time, it, I soon hit a bottleneck. It's like, okay, I need a more thorough and foundational instruction in order to get to understand all this material more because even though I, I consider myself a pretty smart guy, but then I know when I hit that bottleneck. I know if I read soon and it talks about taking all the pauses, doing all the points, but if I am not treating patients and if I just doing this intellectual exercise in my head, it's not going to work out. So then I decided to drop my work and sign up for acupuncture school. That's a really gutsy move. Here you are, you've got this, this great career going in engineering with some high-tech cutting edge stuff that's got to be a lot of fun and you get interested in chinese medicine i had a very similar question come up in my mind after i'd had some treatments which was exactly like what is this and what is going on here that was 25 years ago i still ask that question what is going on here i think you're right that we can approach it as an intellectual exercise we could take a scholarly perspective you know, maybe just sit in our studies and read and think. But there's something about being in the clinic. There's something about being a part of this thing unfolding in real time that brings a whole different level of experience and understanding. Yeah. When I used to read, before I even signed up for acupuncture school, I read a lot of almost like case study. And a lot of people were acupuncturists or herbalists, they just kind of showcase their prowess and say, oh, when this patient comes in, uh, uh, I did this, 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 and then the patient is all good. And I'm just like, okay, that sounds like the legends of, I don't know, being sure or legend of Watu. Mm-hmm. We all know and love those, but are they real? And especially today, it's really hard for us to fact check those case studies. People can be making feel. So even though I'm open to that possibility, and but at the same time, there's always a doubt in my head. It's like, is that real? But after I graduated from school and then I learned a, a little bit of things here and there, and then I was able to recreate that. And that is something completely different. And that is when I start to have this, you can say almost like a faith or confidence in my practice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, so this is what we can achieve. And maybe we can even shoot for higher. So that is what this profession, what does all this body of knowledge continue to fascinate me? Because it almost feels like it's still waiting for us to explore what more can we do. 
for our patients and even for our intellectual pursuit, what more is out there? Exactly. And it's endless, which I'm not sure if that's the good news or the bad news. <laughs> you know, you just said something about when you see it actually work. I mean, we read these incredible case studies and it gives us a hint. It gives us a clue. Maybe we can learn to work like this. But until you've done it yourself, it's a nice fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And you use the word faith and you use, you use the word confidence. I think faith is when we read it and we believe it's true. Mm -hmm. Confidence is when we've read it, we've actually done it. Mm -hmm. That's where the confidence comes from. Yep. You know, when it's in our true experience. I think it's so hard to understand a lot about Chinese medicine without having a hand in it other than very maybe academic or intellectual understanding, has its place. But until we have that actual experience, mm -hmm. it's hard to know for sure. And this gets into the topic that I wanted to discuss with you. You stand in a very unique place. You speak English, you speak Chinese, you read Chinese, you're from Taiwan, so you're, mm -hmm. you're fluent in this stuff. Fluent in the language, also have a foot in Chinese culture and a foot in American culture. Mm -hmm. I spent a little time in, in Taipei. And one of the things that I loved about being there, in addition to the food, of course, <laughs> was how Chinese medicine wasn't some kind of add-on. It was integrated and a piece of the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, you stand in a unique position there. You, you bring some resources to bear here. One of the questions that we were talking about before rolling a little bit of tape is, is this very question of how we know what we know. This is maybe the human condition to some degree. How we know what we know, and especially when it comes to Chinese medicine, when we read the Su Wen or the Shang Han Wen or whatever, mm -hmm. looking back through the resources that have been given to us, and when we read the old case studies, you know, we have this idea that we understand what was going on back then. But the question that I've always got, because I can talk myself into anything, the question I've got is how can we, through the filters of our modern mind and our modern culture, look back and understand what those cats back there might have been talking about? Mm -hmm. Have you got any thoughts about that? This is an area I'm still actively investigating at the moment because it is also a learning process for me when, whenever I prepare to teach or for the case uh, when I translate things. And I think the idea some kind of got to me when I was preparing to teach this class in historical schools of Chinese medicine at CCHS. Great thanks to Phil Settles who invited me to teach there. And that was my first glimpse into this because when I prepared to teach that class, I wanted to teach it a little bit differently because in most programs, when you have those uh, historical schools, you actually have a list of five or six legends or prominent figures throughout history. And then you hear about their legendary feats and then you study two formulas from them and that's it. Then you move on to the next guy. I feel like maybe there's a little bit more to that. Maybe some, each one of them was trying to discover something new where they were trying to respond to circumstances at a time. So that's why they came up with their ideas. And at the time, I was still 
quite fairly new to the idea and also at the time was simply overwhelmed because to prepare for that class, I think I read, for, read through or at least browse through at least 50, 60 different books throughout history from every single commentator out there. So I was a little bit overwhelmed. So I didn't really get my head around to that idea. But that idea really came to my mind strongly when I was translating Zhang Jingyue's work. Because at first, when I was doing translation, the very first step is you cannot translate it literally. You just, whatever the person says, you just write it down and translate it, try to reproduce it in English. So in a sense, we are taking the author's opinion literally. Mm. So when Zhang Jingyue says that Yang is important, in is also important, but Yang is more important. Should we take that message literally? Or was he trying to respond to what was happening during his time? And when I was going through the editing process and also when I thought about this material more, then it came to me that, no, we cannot take it literally. We have to consider the historical context at the time. So what Zhang Jingyue was fighting for at the time was the mainstream practice was defined largely by Zhu Danxi and Liu Wansu's treatment methodology. So from Liu Wansu, people have a tendency to clarify. They believe everything could cause fire. And from Zhu Danxi's point of view, he brought in new Confucian idea or doctrine into medicine and believes that as soon you generate some sort of desire, or if you have any sort of emotion in your heart, then there's fire. You have to quench it. So desire, any desire. Any desire. Is going to create fire. Yes. That, that is Zhu Danxi. So Zhu Danxi advocates you had to... No wonder California is burning right now. <laughs> that could be, that could explain why, why there's so much fire. In the, I, I hear people are a little bit more outspoken out there on the West. On the East side, we're a little bit more reserved. <laughs> and so when Zhu Danxi brought in all that conversation, so during Zhang Jingyue's time, all people could thought, think of was fire. We had to kill a fire. So when Zhang Jingyue was writing his work, he was largely in response to that. It's like, okay, yes, there are fire disease. Then we had to deal with that with cooling earth. But at the same time, we cannot just treat all cases of fire. And that's why I think he really wanted to advocate for the yang. It's not that Yang is more important in because at the time it was so imbalanced. He has to make a very strong argument against that. And so I think that's where the historical context comes in. And also I was talking with Sharon Weisenbaum the other day and we were, I was asking the question, that, that was just my pondering at the time. It's like, why did Zhang Jingyue talk about the yin yang and six parameter today? We know, know it as the A principle, Ba Gang. He called it as yin yang, liu bian. Yin yang is six variations, and as well as the 10 questions. What were his purpose of that? Was he trying to be a diagnostician or was it trying to uh, depend on study? And when I thought about it, I was like, maybe, just maybe, because Zhu Danxi was super influential. We call it the king of miscellaneous disease. So whenever you have some sort of disease, the first thing you go to is you look at Zhu Danxi's manual. And then you look through the manual and just look at the disease. And actually, Zhu Danxi did it so quite brilliantly. He broke it into category. And for each disease, he broke it into different pathomatic mechanisms that could have caused it. So if we are just locked into that sort of practice mentality, then we would be 
focusing only into this disease-oriented treatment at all. So for every single one treatment we conduct, we would only focus on the disease. So that means we would completely ignore the constitution of the patient. Mm-hmm. So maybe when Zhang Jingyue was talking about the earlier heaven, later heaven, the yin yang, and also six variation, and the 10 question is asking people like, okay, besides treating disease, which he assumes everyone already knows so much about, he doesn't need to mention that. We also need to understand what's the underlying condition for the patient. And for me, the historical context probably gives me a possibility of what is the argument the person is trying to make at the time. And also the question is that, she would take the words of each commentator literally. So for me, we should not, we cannot. And we had to always consider the historical context and what type of argument the person is trying to make. What question is the person trying to answer? Wow, this is a very potent observation on your part. I remember when I was in acupuncture school and we'd be reading through the Materia Medica Mm-hmm. And we'd learn a formula because the important thing was to learn the formula because we we're going to use it in clinic or we we're going to be tested on it. And so, you know, the important thing is what's in it, what does it do, how do I use it? But it would always have a line in there about where it came from. Oh, this is from Zhu Danxi. This is from Zhang Dongjing. This is from Wen Bing. And it was only years later that I realized that little line about where it came from was a clue into how that prescription might have been a response to a time in culture, mm-hmm. a time in history. Was there famine? Was, was there plenty of food? Mm-hmm. What kind of people were they? Did it come from the north or from the south? Those northerners can handle that mahuang, but those southerners don't do that to them. Mm-hmm. All kinds of things that, you know, little cultural things that you might not know about. But yes, there's a clue that could be in there. And the other thing, I remember reading Paul Unschold's Nanjing mm-hmm. when I was in school. Again, this is one of those kind of enlightening moments that for me about the medicine that both gave me a glimpse and helped me to better understand why there are so many arguments that we have amongst each other about how this dang stuff works. Because if you look at the modern day and different kinds of practitioners, we argue vehemently with each other mm-hmm. about what's the proper way to treat, what's the wrong way to treat. You know, there's different schools of thought. And as you read through those old commentaries, like you did in preparing for the class at Phil School, you'll find that doctors have been arguing with each other, not just within their current lifetime, but over the centuries. And I hadn't thought about what you just said. This, this further illuminates it for me, that what they're talking about might be a response to the sort of zeitgeist of the times, the popularity of the times. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that, you might think they're actually talking about the Su Wen, or you might think that they're talking about something from the Shanghai Lun. You might think they're talking about something that is a foundational aspect of Chinese medicine, and we think we know what it means. Mm-hmm. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it just might be that they have an opinion about the time and they're pushing back against some other influence. Yeah, I believe so. Because it is almost like editorial or commentators today, or even when we publish research journal articles, we are not really making a case against Sir Isaac Newton. Or we're not really, I mean, 
when we can do it, that's great. But most of the time, our primary concern is what do people believe now? What does the whole of the society, what the whole of the, our community believe at the time? What are they practicing? And especially for the case of medicine, because when medicine, if we practice with certain bias or certain dogma, mm. then there could be some dangers. And so when I read through Zhang Jingyue's work, I feel like he was writing such a passionate, strong responses because he saw people were getting mistreated. He saw people were, in his words, were almost like abused because people were practicing the dogma blindly and to the disservice of the patient. And, but let me add on to one more interesting bit of that. So after Zhang Jingyue wrote out all that stuff to fight against Zhu Danxi and Liu Wansu, so, well, his work was not really published for 100 years because he was poor. He died in poverty, and his son published the work almost 100 years later, 60 or 100 years later. And after his book was published, and it became super prominent, it became super influential, and everyone started to using Renshun Fuzi, Rogue, only. And then it started to create a lot of issues. And Imagine that. Yeah, so then Chen Xiuren came along, and he just attacked the entirety of what Zhang Jingyue stood for. And I was like, hmm, this is quite interesting, because I feel like if Chen Xiuren lived in the time of Zhang Jingyue, he would have made the same argument. Mm-hmm. He would, because what he was responding to is not really this personal attack. He was responding to the mainstream practice of the time, and in which people were practicing with this blind attachment to their dogma, and they believe it worked. It's like, okay, whenever a patient comes in, they just say, oh, yeah, that's yang deficiency, renzen fuzi, and uh, rou gui. And it, sometimes uh, they, they mix in a little bit of shu di huang, but that would be their protocol for every single patient, or 80% of their patient, and then people start dying left and right, and what we start to have a lot of digestion issues because those things are not that easy to digest, especially if you miss. Uh, prescribe it. And then Chen Shuren was like, okay, let me destroy that guy. <laughs> or to my point of view, I, I feel like Chen Shuren was like, he is not against Zhang Jingyue because he does have a little bit of works that further refine the work of Zhang Jingyue. Like, for example, Zhang Jingyue wrote 10 questions and Chen Shuren refined it. He actually edited it and expanded it. And he says, that is how we should diagnose. And Chen Shuren also, he wrote a work just attack every single one of Zhang Junyue's formula. But in his other works, he also praised the ingenuity and the genius of Zhang Junyue. So first read about those works. If we just read one or two books, we kind of get this almost cartoonish idea about those historical figures and what they stand for. But the more we read, it, there's a lot more complexity to that. And all the, again, for the arguments that maybe we should not always take them literally, we need to understand what was going on at the time and what question are those people trying to answer? Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. 
but this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Yes, well, it sounds like what they're trying to do is to practice medicine in a safe and effective mm -hmm. way and help people. And Zhang Jingyue had his particular point of view when he was alive, given the times. Mm -hmm. Chen Shuren comes along a bit later. Now there's the influence of Zhang Jingyue that's sort of in the mainstream. He's not picking on Zhang Jingyue just because he's like, oh, I got it out for this guy. Mm -hmm. He's looking at the medicine of the moment and going, there's some things that aren't working well here. And he could take some of it and point it back mm -hmm. at the same time. And this is beautiful. This is gorgeous. He also would look at some of what Chang Jingyue did, and he says, yeah, this is, so this guy's smart. Mm -hmm. Let's not throw this guy out. Yep. It's looking at the moment, and you said something, this rings so true for me, dogma and ideology. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is look around our world right now, all the polarizations going on. It's very easy to be working out of your dogma. Mm-hmm because it's the right thing to do. And then mm -hmm. that's going to influence the kind of medicine that you practice. It will influence how you see people. Mm -hmm. It will influence how you interact with people. It will influence all kinds of things. And so it sounds to me that as practitioners, as doctors, in some ways, we need to know our medicine and know it really well and know these different ways of thinking and working, ideally with the nuance that you're speaking about. But more than that, we need to be aware of our own biases. We need to mm -hmm. be aware of our own dogma. We need to be aware of how our own best intentions mm -hmm. might get in the way. Yeah. I feel like most practitioners, they practice out of the goodness. They want people to get better. I do not do not think any practitioner wants to hurt their patient. I and so. I believe where the dogma comes in is that well, first off, especially from the English side, there is a limited resource available for people to access. So for me, I can reach back for like 1,000 years back to Song Dynasty. I can pull out all this thing easily, but it's not really a case for most people here on the, on the Western side. So when they have this limited amount of information, they tend to study with one person or one group of people who kind of just shape their perspective or the scope of their practice, so to speak. So that inherently has certain limitation where we can say bias. And the other thing is that bias or dogma makes us feel safe. Mm -hmm. And also it's an easy way because it's, it's like that works for that one, that person that works for certain those cases. And I'm pretty sure I, with my own eyes that it works. So if I just copy that, it should work. And if it doesn't work, let me try again. And again, if it doesn't work out at the end, just discharge a patient, try again. I, I don't know. I feel like 
it's never through some malicious intent people practice dogma. It's that people are a little bit trapped within that perspective without being aware of that. I think that's what's, what's going on with most cases. And personally, I know I have my own bias. For example, my bias is actually shaped by you <laughs> from the 10 former families. That's how I practice in clinics. So when, when I see patient, I was first trying to see, oh, what type of constitution could that person be? And at the same time, I also think about maybe I can use something to help treat the disease better. But that would be my inherent bias because I believe that there's such a thing as herbal constitution. Mm. But maybe that's not completely true. We do know it works quite well in the clinic. And yet I also have certain cases, I try everything, it doesn't work out. And so when it comes back to me, I was just like, okay, now I need to think about more on what limitation could there be? Maybe I, I just lack experience. Maybe I haven't figured something out. Maybe, or maybe I need to consider other things especially from the Western medical side, like, uh, could the patient have gotten certain type of procedure that inhibit my treatment? Or maybe there's something I do not understand enough about my patient. And so I think the danger of dogma and bias is that when we see those as a safe protocol, the easy way to treat people, that's when the danger comes in. That means we start exploring all the different possibilities for the service of our patient. We close our mind down a bit when we decide it's going to work a certain way or I use a particular system and everything has to fit within the system. Well, a good system will help you understand a lot of your patients, but I don't think it's going to help you understand all of your patients. And I'm glad that Dr. Huang Huang's book was helpful for you in your learning. I know that it was certainly helpful for me. Well, first of all, it gave me a whole different way of thinking. I mean, when I first started reading that book, my Chinese was not good. And when I first started reading it, my first thought was, yeah, my Chinese is really bad because I'm clearly misunderstanding this guy because I've never read anything like this before. And then I realized, no, actually, I am understanding. (laughs) And I've just never read anything like this before. Yeah, I've never read anything like that. It's extraordinary. (laughs) And I found Dr. Huang Hong's work, and I still do find it, to be very helpful because it gives a perspective, especially for a beginning herbalist, of what might be useful at the outset. And sometimes if you can take a bunch of things and screen them out, then you can focus in on what might be useful. Now, I think I've always been a believer. How do you know a treatment is working? Well, because the treatment is working. And sometimes, you know, I might use Dr. Huang's thinking and I'm getting nowhere with it. I'm actually wrong. Maybe I'm just wrong, or maybe I just don't understand it well enough. So often, when I can't get the medicine to work, I don't think the medicine is limited. I think I just don't understand it well enough. And and Mm -hmm. there's often certain nuances. There might be something that's primary that needs Mm -hmm. to be addressed first, but I'm missing it. For whatever reason, I'm blind to it. Mm -hmm. I can't see it. And so it won't work. But the beauty of Dr. Huang's, whether you believe... See, I don't believe that there's constitutional formulas. I believe that there are different mental models that Mm -hmm. can be useful. They're only useful insofar as they actually help you recognize what reality is. And and so there's this kind of, uh, I'm not going to call it a thin line, but it's like Venn diagrams. There's a place where what is the patient and what is true Mm -hmm. intersects with what the theory says. And and you can see with Mm -hmm. some clarity Mm -hmm. those things match up. But again, they're, they're like all mental models that can be useful 
Mm-hmm. The trick, I think, as you were pointing out, is to see what actually is there. And, and there's some great ways of looking at things. But don't get caught up in that this is the way that everything has to work. Yeah. When I was studying with uh, Dr. Wei Jiang, he mentioned one thing quite interesting. And I think in some, some way, it kind of opened up my ideas about dogma. And it has a lot to do with the originality of China. Because each region of China has, modern time is a little bit different. But back in the days, people kind of just stay in one region forever with your life because there's little to no social mobility. You cannot just move around freely around the kingdom. So if people stay down there in Jiangsu region, then it is really hot and humid. And just like Taiwan and Hong Kong and also Sichuan, those are really hot and humid climate all years long. So what happens is those people tend to sweat a lot. Their pores are always open. And it turns out people from those regions like to use foods a lot. So the regions that use foods the most is Sichuan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau. So those are where the fire gas school were. Today, the followers, Dr. Nihai Shah, were people who really love to use foods that really came from, those were from those regions because that is a, almost like a general constitution of what people are like. And then in the north, because it is really cold and frigid and people maybe take a shower once a month or once every two months. So their skin tend to be quite rough. That's when you mentioned earlier, they, they can handle Ma Huang Tang because their skin, you really need that fierce power of Mahong to break through that for you to open the pores because it's never been opened. So you got to break it open. So for those people, you want to use Mahong. And also for those people in the North, since all their pores are closed, then there's a possibility or a strong possibility for it to develop into this depressed heat that Liu Wansu says all the time about because in the South, pores are open. If you have heat, it just vents out with a wet, but not in the North because it cannot go anywhere. It just kind of get congealed, trapped within the skin and developed into this heat and fire. So back to Dr. Wei Jiang. So he says that because he studied in uh, Beijing Tsing University and got a PhD there. So during that time, he invited a few really, really famous doctors from Beijing to Taiwan to do a lecture. And people attend to it. It's like, oh my God, that's the most insightful and the, mo- the best lecture ever given. And so after the lecture, there were a few case studies where people just came up to him and he just diagnosed and prescribed the treatment. And he noticed one thing, that doctor always added in the three yellow brothers, Da Huang, Huang Lian, and Huang Qing. That is interesting. And none of the treatment worked. Because it was congealing. Congealing? Yeah. So in Beijing, a lot of people had congealed, depressed heat or some type of heat accumulation within the body. So you always want to use that to clear that. But when he went to Taiwan, when people sweat all the time and they have a tendency to lose their yang qi because sweat is yang qi. So most people are a little bit on the yang deficient side. And then you, if you further add in the three yellow brothers, God helps them. <laughs> so then that's when Dr. Yang said, oh, I swear to God, that guy is like the best doctor in the Beijing region. I can swear. That guy learned so much. He has so, so much clinical knowledge, everything. And it's, he's almost, he works miracle in Beijing. Why didn't he work in Taiwan? The thing is regionality and what type of people we are treating there. And then I think that's what Dr. Yang f- first got me. The idea is like, oh, maybe we should consider not just lineage and but regionality, what people eat, climate people live in. And, and maybe we have developed worse 
maybe the lineage developed those as a response to those patients. And so when I first began to practice, I was highly influenced by the foods school. I believe if you want to treat anything, you, you can just add foods because one of my first influence was Dr. Ni Haisha, who is famous for the as he has a nickname of Ni, the foods guy. <laughs> and also I was highly influenced by Li Ke, who uses like, I don't know, 200 grams of foods one day or something like that. And also then I read Liu Li Hong's Si Kao Zhong Yi. So later on, he also joined the fire god school and then he got highly influenced. And so he uses foods left and right <laughs> for everyone. So, but then I, after I began to practice, I realized it's not working. Maybe not here in Maryland. <laughs> because we do have four seasons. We are not always hot all the time. So, and that is actually what led me to questions. I, that was my first dogma, my first safe space, so to speak. I believe from my worldview at the time, Fuzi was the one answer, the one salvation to all my patients. But then I started to see patients who are not in this Venn diagram with this safe space. <laughs> That was when I was lost. I was like, oh my God. So how do I reorient my thought? And that actually, that's when your book brought to me. It's like, okay, now I have a guideline to follow. Maybe it's not an answer to everything, but it will give me a very good first step to yeah. understand a patient or deal with a disease or at least give me something to start on. And it tends to work. It doesn't work 100%, but it gives me some perspective. And also I think... The, the way how Dr. Huang Huang does it so beautifully is that for me, right now, when I see patients, I kind of almost seems like they kind of go into a different category. Or when I face a disease where a patient, immediately I was like, oh, that feels like bansha. Mm -hmm. So that gives a head start. It's like, okay, here are those bansha formula. Which one do I pick from? And so that would give me a very easy start instead of going, scratching my head it's like, oh, this person had that, so I need Chai Hu. That person had that, oh, I also need this. I also need that. And in the end, I was like, oh, okay, that seems like a possibility of like 20, 30 different formulas. So it gives you a really good guideline to begin my treatment. So that's all my thanks to you because after the destruction of my first dogma, <laughs> that, that, that was what, what kept me going. <laughs> You know, I think you've just put your finger on something very poignant here, that we do have ideas. They're often good ideas. They often work in a context. I mean, I remember very early in my studies, one of my teachers really hammering home the idea because he came from a completely different place. He actually came to the school that I was at and Seattle is very different than the, than the environment that he lived in. He would preface so many of his comments with, well, where I live and the weather's like this, it works like that, and this is what I use. But here in Seattle, that may not be the case, right? You're going to need to pay attention to that. You're going to need to modify accordingly. And that's always been in the back of my mind. But, but the thing that you just brought out, and I think this is what makes practicing medicine truly an act of yangsheng and an act of cultivation <laughs> is that we will find things that generally work and then we find places where they don't work at all. And so the mental models, the cognitive frameworks, the beliefs, the dogmas, they're all going to get broken at some point. <laughs> like, how are you with having your view of the world 
a bandit, mm -hmm. broken. So let me ask you just personally, when you're in the midst of, oh yeah, things work and I kind of know what I'm doing, and then you realize, actually, things aren't working at all, and maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And when your dogma starts to break down, how do you handle it? What do you do? What, what do you lean on to find your next steps? So when that first happened, I think I was a little bit desperate. So I still really want to hold, hold on to it and hold on to that dogma and just like, maybe I just didn't figure out quite well. Maybe I need to find out new ways to use foods because that was my first dogma. Or maybe I just didn't understand Shanghandun well. So I just remember they were nice. I was just like, feverishly like browsing through pages of Jingwei others. Like, there's definitely something I missed. But it didn't really work out. Then I just started to prescribe all the random formulas. So basically, because from institution training, we still learn from Bensky, the material medica, and also the formula strategy. So we still need to know how to put formulas together. But at the same time, I just like, oh, let me just uh, scramble this together and see what, and it didn't. And just, I always say, at the time, it really hit me really hard with my confidence. And then I did all the desperate measures, trying my best to serve a patient, but at the same time, it's not working. And at time, I even blame the patient. It's like, oh, it's all your fault. It, uh, you are not taking care of yourself. It's your lifestyle. It's blah, blah, blah. But, but right. those are my excuses. It's my inadequacy. It's not the patient's fault. Those things play a role in that. But I am only speaking of it out of my desperation. And then I think winter 2014 or 15, I don't remember exact year. Then I went to uh, Dr. Huang Huang's lecture in Flushing, New York. That changed my life. Then I got your book. <laughs> yeah, then I was like, oh, okay. Now I don't need to use 100% foods. I can, I, I can use something else. I have all the newfound flexibility to deal with all types of things, whether I want to steer more into the constitution idea, more into a disease. And he just offers us such a good framework for us to start our treatment. Of course, framework being a main main structure or mental model is bound to have certain limitations. But I feel like even Dr. Hong Hong, he's still evolving. Even nowadays, he's in his last work, you know, fourth edition of his clinical manual, he's integrating in a lot of information from Kempo medicine and also evidence-based studies. So I feel like he's still evolving. And even though he really proposed this idea of constitution, formula, and disease, the three-point attack we need to consider when we are treating patients. But at the same time, he's still evolving. And for me now, that would be my dogma. But I, I find this one to be a little bit more flexible and more accommodating to our patient, whatever case it arises. And does it work all the time? No, of course not. <laughs> we cannot treat all the patients. But I feel like this is something I really like now because it offers us a lot more possibility and always keeps us curious. Yes, I'm a little bit like you. I tend to lean on my curiosity. And I yeah. came to Chinese medicine not too dissimilarly from you in that I got curious about it. I had a nice career in high tech. Mm -hmm. I was not looking for another career. I was not looking for another job. But I got curious about it. One thing led to another. I mean, we didn't have tons of books in, in English at that time. So curiosity, I think, can be a part. I know for me, it's a part of that breaking down the dogma you know, there's always that moment of like, oh, shit, now what? Mm -hmm. And yes, the confidence. I think early on, the confidence takes a hit. I think over time, 
as experience accumulates, the confidence doesn't take so much of a hit. It's more like, huh, that's weird, right? It's like, this should work. Mm -hmm. I've got enough experience with it working. This isn't working. It becomes, I'm going to say those failures become less threatening over time. Mm -hmm. And they become more of a catalyst for, oh, okay, I actually don't know what's going on here. And I'm kind of excited because I've got a new puzzle now. But I think that comes later. I don't... Yeah, because I feel like in a institutional training world, whether we follow certain people as apprentice, we're almost given the, this impression of that there is this one truth in our profession. There is this one model that works out so perfectly for everything. So I think in certain way, we're trained to believe that is the sacred order of the world and we become very very attached to that so to speak when we had to have our faith in that so when we go into chinese medicine we had to somewhat abandon what we know about western medicine at the beginning or at least at the beginning or else it will conflict with everything you're learning at the time it's like we have all this anatomical study we have all this knowledge about human disease and everything in the past 200 years now we kind of want to let go put it on the side for the time being and learn something from like 2000 years ago so i think we did that intentionally at the beginning and pick out this model and believe this is better than the Western medicine model. So when that thing is shattered, we kind of fall into this crisis of, oh, what do we do? Should we go back to Western medicine? Where, where do we go now? We were promised this was going to be our salvation, but what now? I think for me, I feel like when I think back in my life, it was really those crisis moments like when I broke out crying in the shower after my research professor yelled at me. I was, oh, I was a really bad student. <laughs> and in Chinese medicine, when I had my crisis with my doma destroyed, and that was actually a catalyst for me to learn, to consider maybe that's not the solution to everything. And also that maybe do something sort of perfection. Like, and especially years later on, it's like, why was that destroyed? That is very interesting because it is a knowledge or it is just a conceptual framework. Why am I so devastated from that destruction? Because it should not be personal. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, you just used a phrase, sacred order of the world. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. 
So we know this from looking at Western history in particular. People that have an idea of the sacred order of the world, i.e. their religion, mm -hmm. are happy to take an axe and convert their neighbor. So no, I don't think anyone takes too kindly to having their sacred order of the world mm -hmm. taken apart. I think that is, if you're not devastated by it, then maybe you haven't gotten down to the crux of your actual sacred order of the world. Our medicine will break us mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. process of making us. Yep. Have you got any practices that sort of help you keep head and heart together in, in the midst of things falling apart? So for me, I'm a Buddhist. So personally, I practice meditation. So there are a lot of different kinds of meditation out there. So I think the most famous ones out there is something called Anapanasati. My phone is sort of breath. So you just focus on your breathing. And the other type that is really popular with the going income movement right now is Vipassana, the inside meditation. But for me, I practice something a little bit lesser known. It's called uh, meditation on loving kindness and meditation on compassion. So metta and karuna meditation, those are, I would say those are the things that saved my life because I was a very headstrong person <laughs> with a lot of anger. <laughs> so there are a lot of issues in, in my background. So I actually immigrated twice. I was born in the States and I immigrated to Taiwan. So that was a huge trauma for me when I was young. Then I immigrated back to the States. That was second trauma in my life. And also all families have their own issues. And so that kind of shaped me to be about this, this young guy who was like brilliant, smart, clever, but so much anger and so eager to prove himself. So I always had this inner frustration, anger that I stored up and everything just ticks me off. And I would say loving kindness and compassion is what really saved me because it was what resolved my inner anger because then I need to look into myself, learn to forgive myself for all the mistakes I made and also learn to love myself because I made those mistakes because at the time I thought that was the best thing I, I could do for myself. <laughs> I didn't do it to hurt myself even. I think we always come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. You know, they're helpful in the moment. Mm -hmm. Anger can be really useful because mm -hmm. man, oh man, it mm -hmm. sets a boundary. If there's some issues with boundary, anger, mm -hmm. super helpful. Here's the boundary. So often our solutions, the root of our next problem. And this really resonates. I tend to be a bit woody myself. I know that anger is a potent fuel, but it's kind of like rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's toxic and it's hot, and it can bust through some barriers. Man, it can get you to escape velocity, but it will burn you to a crisp. Yep. At the same time, so so here you are with the opposite side of the wood, you know, the virtuous cycle, which is benevolence and loving kindness. You know, I hear you say that, and meditation is loving kindness, and, and I tend to be a bit of a I like to know how things work. I like the nuts and bolts of things. So I, too, will like go to the books and try to figure out, you know, what am I missing technically here? <laughs> Sometimes it's not what I'm missing technically. It's that I need to sit quietly and have my heart a bit more open and a bit more attentive. And so hearing that you lean on loving kindness, that sounds like a helpful practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely calms me down a lot more. And... I mean, I still struggle from time to time because this is like a lifetime pattern I've been having. But whenever something starts to tick me off, I, now I know, okay, I definitely need, need some space and really look into myself. And also, I think the number one issue I have or what really 
generates my anxiety is my relationship with people, especially in my younger years when I was an idiot who don't know how to handle social situation or how to treat people nicely. Then, then I always wake up at midnight and say, oh my God, I did this to that person. And why did I do that? And I start tormenting myself over all, all the past misdeeds. And even with patient as well, it's like when I treat a patient, I have my expectation. And sometimes I do it, the treatment, although my expectation for myself, but I don't really care about what the patient feels. And then that would lead to a situation where there's almost like a miscommunication between me and the patient, what the patient wants and what I want. And that does not serve. And that is when I find compassion really helps. It's like, Alan, think about it. The patient comes to you because the patient is suffering. What the patient is going to, he's seeking for help. What are you doing? <laughs> like, are you just treating this patient to serve your ego? Or are you really understanding what they are going through and try your best to help them? So I would say those two are really the ones that really maybe makes me a somewhat okay person to deal with and also makes me a more well-rounded person who is not that quick to anger. I appreciate your forthright honesty and your courage to say something like that. You've treated your patients in service of yourself. Yeah, I definitely did that in my younger years. I have done that too. Mm -hmm. And not intentionally, Mm -hmm. not because of malice or out of ignorance more maybe out of pain, fear, but ignorance, I think, more than anything. Yeah. I think it's probably, I mean, I could be wrong about this, wrong about a lot of stuff, but my suspicion is maybe all practitioners, we go through these stages of development, and one of those stages is recognizing how we've been trying to help ourselves. Yes, we're trying to help someone else, but we've actually got more of our own ego and more of our own issues in the room <laughs> than is helpful for a patient. Coming to that recognition with some compassion <laughs> and then starting again. Because then after that, you're a different kind of practitioner. Not easy work. Yep. <laughs> it's a struggle from time to time, but I feel like those are the inner practices I rely on the most for myself especially for me, because I feel like most of my stress, anxiety comes from how I deal with people and how I deal with myself and my past history. And so those are really kind of what keeps my head clear and also keep me to kind of resolve one. Sometimes when I do compassion, sometimes it feels like I'm resolving this knot in my heart, just resolving it one by one. It's like, why am I so attached? Why do I so much faster myself to that one point in time when I did that thing. And it, sometimes I just feel like it's just kind of unknotted, slightly, slightly, slightly. It is an unknotting. It's like a disentangling. It's amazing mm-hmm. sometimes when sitting quietly, you know, whatever your practice is to sit quietly. And sometimes, sometimes mm-hmm. you get a glimpse and it's like, oh, there's all this other stuff that's attached, this feeling or this thought. And then it releases a little, but don't worry. We'll get to come back and work at it some more later. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just quiet here for a moment because I, I, I so appreciate, you know, we, again, we talk about cultivation, kind of a breathless way of, oh, of course, cultivation. But man, cultivation takes a tremendous amount of courage. Yep. 
when we do, usually when we go to the retreat to do loving kindness or compassion meditation, a lot of people left during during the course of of the retreat because it's very scary to face yourself. It's very scary to sit there in silence and look into yourself and recognize that a lot of times we have this mental image of ourselves of being perfect, of being blameless, of being everything is flawless. But when we sit there and look at ourselves, like, no, that's not the case. Are we willing to admit that? And that brings back to our earlier conversation is that those are the crisis moment that maybe if we face into that and learn from it, and it could become a catalyst for our growth or in this case, for learning kinds of compassion, I feel like it's almost like a liberation from those entanglement. But for me, even for me, the first year, second year when I did it, it was really, really scary. And especially then one issue is that because we become so attached to our constructed identity and when that identity proves to be like our early case, a dogma, <laughs> when that you start to peel away that layer of onion, you realize it's not what it seems. Your worldview kind of shatters, and not everyone's willing to do it. And I imagine for me, even I feel like in my background, I suffer enough from my background, but I feel like there are a lot more people who went through bigger trauma, bigger issue, and life circumstances than me do. And for me, when I look at those people, I think it might help them, but at the same time, I also feel a little bit scary of what they might have to face because when you tear down layers, sometimes it almost feels like the beast is going to come out. It might destroy them completely. So maybe whatever is working for them at the moment in this dynamic balance, so to speak, they still have to juggle and deal with everything that happens in their life. Maybe it's better. I don't think it is a path that is suitable for everyone because we never know what people come from and what they have gone through. Well, this is one of the things mm -hmm. I find with our medicine, with acupuncture in particular, because we've all got the stuff that we're working on. There's, mm -hmm. there's none of us that are unscathed. Acupuncture seems to have this curious potency about it, that it can dissolve layers, so to speak, mm -hmm. and put us in touch with resources that we have, but they've maybe been latent for a long time. And so while it's always lovely when people have a, an acupuncture experience and they leave and they feel better, whatever problem they brought them in is, is different, maybe their life is changing in positive and unexpected ways, it's always a delight. Mm -hmm. But sometimes things also will break apart. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about trauma-informed therapy and how traumas get kind of encoded into who we are and <laughs> get, they get layered into our physiology, which I think is true. And there are times when we're kind of working with it and it's all working okay, but then there's going to be that phase change where things really shift. And <laughs> sometimes people come through it pretty smoothly. But sometimes everything has to fall apart. And that doesn't mean that we're doing the wrong thing. Sometimes it means keep going. I've got a friend, actually she lives in Taiwan, and she's got this great phrase. She says, well, you know, it's hard to tell the difference between things falling apart and things falling together. Because there, are, there is that moment where a dogma goes to pieces. Is there anything that you've read 
in terms of the past masters or past practitioners or any of the materials that you've looked through in Chinese, the older stuff that might talk about what we're discussing here right now, that sometimes things have to fall apart for our patients before they get better. Do the old doctors talk about this at all? I don't believe I've read anything like that. I have seen case studies when the practitioner or the commentator themselves kind of broke through their dogma. Mm. They, they realized something is not working, then they discovered this newfound knowledge about medicine. They wrote something about it, but I don't think I have read that from the patient's side. So at this time, I do not know. And I was wondering if any, any of the old doctors recognize this in terms of treating their patients. I mean, maybe this is where like some of the ghost point stuff comes in. Maybe. Or, you know, exorcism treatments or mm-hmm. things of that nature. I mean, maybe they talked about it and encoded that you know, in a different way than, than you and I are talking here in the modern age. Well, it does sound a little bit like my tongue, but <laughs> but I think it's too easy to jump into that and buy her tongue and buy her dihuang tongue, something like that, but I just don't know. But I can tell from my treatment, it did happen a few times, and it happens quite often with Xiao Yosan. So... A few times I was seeing like, like those like classic Xiao Yao San pattern, like uh, when you take the pulse, it's a little bit wiry, and then the patient looks like, oh, it's under so much stress and not rested and have all the anger stored within them, but just kind of suppress it down. And some people even suppress it down to the, the stuff. Then when they recognize they are not even aware they have that type of frustration anymore, they thought they are passive, but no, it's become internalized into somewhere lower. So when I saw those patients, I was like, oh, okay, you need Xiao San. Or, I, or to at least I need to give you something like Dang Gui Xiao San to build you up better. And then maybe use Xiao San to vent out some of that. At first, I saw Xiao San will kind of ease the person down, less tension. The, the person will be less icky and more relaxed. They got pissed off. They got angry. They got outbursts of anger. And, and they come back next week. like, your thing is not working. I'm feeling worse right now. I was like, Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> At first, I really messed up. So then I just quickly switched to something like a button tongue or something to stabilize the patient a little bit before I tried again. But later on, I was just like, or sometimes I was like, maybe I'm on the right track. And maybe I need to increase the dose of chai hu. <laughs> Increases such a degree, kind of breaks through that everything, breaks through all that yu qi or breaks through all that depression, stagnant constraint to get rid of that. This is a great point, and, and this is why I love Chinese medicine so much because you're using a very common formula. We all know Shai Asan, and oh, yeah, it helps people and they feel better. Well, there might be a phase where it doesn't, it actually might get worse, and you might need to adjust percentages of your herbs to address this because they're in the process of, of unwinding, the process of uncorking, they're in the process of, of maybe having that dogma, that mm-hmm. model of the world coming apart. Anyone who likes their view of the world coming apart. No, no one wants you to pull a rock under their feet, especially you don't have any replacement for them. And that's the scary part for a lot of people. If you think their worldview is flawed, and then you decide that out of your good, you pull the rug under from it. Now the patient has nothing. That's even worse. Forces are in place. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, in our modern world, that could mean you're seeing a psychotherapist, or maybe mm-hmm. you've got a meditation practice. Or mm-hmm. I'm just thinking for myself. Actually, I do this sometimes. I've been doing this some acupuncture recently, which has got some firepower to it. And on occasion, especially for people that you know they're kind of nice and they're kind of intellectual, they really think things through really well, but their boundaries suck. And they end mm-hmm. up being really constrained because they won't stand up for themselves. Tonifying the gallbladder, mm-hmm. these people can be really, really helpful. I want to make sure that two things. One, they've actually got some resources to work mm-hmm. with when the shit hits the fan. And two, are they okay with other people calling them a jerk? Are they okay with other people saying, you're so nice, but now you're just awful? Mm-hmm. Because that might be improvement for this person gallbladder energy comes out and goes, nope, here's the boundary, and I'm here to enforce it. Mm-hmm. Got a problem with that, buckaroo? So, <laughs> yeah, there's times I like to warn people and make sure that they've got resources. This could be rocky for a little while. Are you okay with that? Well, I had no idea that we we're going to veer into this territory today. I thought we are going to be sticking with the classics. <laughs> Well, we're just having a conversation. I have my tea, so anything goes with the tea, right? Anything goes with the tea. You got that right, my friend. Well, we could probably talk about a lot of other things. And, and mm-hmm. one of the things I'd, I'd love to talk with you more about, I think we're going to have to do it another day, though, is Shuling Tai. Oh, my hero. Your hero. So <laughs> it was Dr. Huang Huang that actually turned me on to uh, Shu Da Chun. Shu Ling Tai's other name. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Huang Huang is, is a big fan of, of Shu Ling Tai. And uh, so maybe we can come back on another day and, uh, and dig into that. Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. <laughs> Before we say goodbye, though, could you give us just a quick little preview of why Shu Ling Tai is your hero, just so people have something to chew on? So the first work I read about Shu Ling Tai is uh, this book called Yi Shi Yun No Lun. So... If you translate into English, it's called uh, the source and transmission of medicine. So Paul Unshold also has a translation for that. I think it's called Forgotten Tradition of Chinese Medicine. So when I read that book, one impression that hits me really hard is that because for the classical commentator, they tend to be like those conservative scholars say everything is canon, blah, blah, blah. And uh, canon are the words of the sages. They are absolute. We cannot question them, blah, blah, blah. Things like that. So you, you are forced into this almost like the Nanjing's are great. The Nanjing is great. But at the same time, you are a little bit constrained to that writing from 2000 years ago. And Shintai was one of the fresher new voice who was not afraid to question those canonical writings. And for me, that came with a lot of new possibility because I feel like maybe it's my training or my background of, I'm scared of the possibility that where there is no more discovery or I'm scared of the situation where I'm left with no more new ideas. And Shin Hyri gives me a really fresh ear of saying, oh, maybe we can be a little bit curious about things. We can think about a few things. And at the same time, well, Shin Tai was still limited by his background or context at the time. He was still uh, very much so the conservative side of uh, canonical annotation. But at the same time, he questions them. For all the flaws, he would say, oh, yeah, the current version of Neijin or Nanjing is not perfect because transmission issue. 
at first it was perfect, but transmission brought in all the issues. But maybe it was just his coded messages like, okay, you do need to look into this. There's something wrong with it. I cannot say it is wrong, but I can blame it on other people. Again, we're looking at the times, the context, mm -hmm. the zeitgeist. Yep. There are certain things you can say, there are certain things you can only... You cannot question the, the authority of the sages. Their words are absolute, but we go your way out of it. And also, yeah, so most of the time, like in the Shanghainan site, we have the misplaced growth current who blames, yeah, the Shanghainan was perfect, but then it got into this disarray through transmission. But it's, it's also their way to say, there is something wrong with the Shanghainan, <laughs> but they cannot see it. As we were discussing earlier, mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways of looking at things. They can be mm -hmm. very, very helpful. Maybe it's not always the right tool for the job that's in mm -hmm. front of us. Yeah, Shuintai is just this guy with okay. endless curiosity. And also one more thing is that he's so systematic. Like he's uh, writing for Shanghan Leifang. Mm -hmm. So after I read Dr. Wang Wang's work, and then that was the next work I was introduced to. I was like, oh my God. So that's how we can read the Shanghan Lun. And maybe we can get better idea of that from, from that. So. Shanghan mm -hmm. Leifang, mm -hmm. Dr. Huang Huang's book in Chinese is Shida Leifang, or new yep. category. So all you listening right now, you got a clue as to where Dr. Huang also got some inspiration. Alan, this has been an absolute delight today. Thank you so much for sharing some tea with me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here to speaking to you. Dr. Huang Huang first introduced me to Shuling Tai as one of the first sources that he came across when investigating formula categories. He did mention that Shu was a bit of an iconoclast, but hearing Alan's perspective that Shuling Tai's writing could be seen as trolling the mainstream practice of the day, well, that put it all into a whole new light for me. Much like today, practitioners often vehemently disagree. Looking back through history, it's easy to imagine an orderly growth and development of Chinese medicine. Now I'm thinking that's a fairy tale. It's all been a lot messier and a lot more complicated. But at least we have some fundamentals that we can always go back to for some grounding. And one other thing, Alan's suggestion that we have some kind of practice that stills us, allows us to dial down our reactivity, well, that's been my experience as well. You don't need to have a meditative practice to practice East Asian medicine, but it does help. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.